please be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to this morning's scripture reading. It's in Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 21 to 47. It's a bit of an extended passage, and so I'd encourage you to um, take a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, then you can take one that's on the rack in front of you. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 is on page 1010, 1010. Um, so it's, it's, we come to this passage, it's not really an overstatement in this case to say that we've reached uh, the climax of the, the gospel of Mark. Um, in, in a sense, we've reached the climax of the entire narrative of the, of the Bible because here we have, as we approach this Easter week, here we have the death of our Savior on the cross. And next week, of course, for Easter Sunday, we'll talk about the the resurrection. But here is the moment that all of human history has been pointing towards. Let's read Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. Now, last year, in March, the Wall Street Journal ran a column by, the, by a guy named James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and a magazine editor and an author. And, and in the column, 
what Martin was doing was contrasting the cultural differences, observing the cultural differences between the Christmas season and Easter time. Right? When we talk about the, you know, the, the, the days surrounding Christmas, we call that the Christmas season. And when we talk about the days surrounding Easter, we call it Easter time. And, and what, what Martin was doing was making the case that Easter time has resisted some of the, some of the commercialization that we see in the, in the Christmas season and resisted, like, uh, like with Christmas, re resisted the huge and entirely secular cultural version of the holiday. Now, there's the Easter bunny, of course, and, and, and things like that. But, but for the most part, if you think about it, there aren't, are there? The, the same, kind of, same, same kind of cultural constructions when it comes to Easter as there is with Christmas, right? There isn't the endless stream of Easter commercials that you see on TV, right? No Easter cards, no office Easter party, right? No Easter lights that you're, you're hanging on your, your house for months. And, and, and the Christian, when they think about this, they, can, they cannot, you know, when they think about Easter, they think about Christmas, they can become very condescending to the culture at this point because we wrinkle our brows and we whine and we complain about the commercialization of Christmas. We, we, we complain about how people just ignore the, 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 the season of Easter and respect for it. But have you ever thought about why? Why, why that different exi difference exists? And because Martin makes the point in this, this Wall Street Journal column, makes the point that the reason for the difference is because, in his words, the Christmas story is largely non-threatening. Jesus in a manger, this is what he says, Jesus in a manger surrounded by Mary and Joseph and the adoring shepherds is easy to take. For the most part, he writes, it can be accepted as a charming story. But Easter time, Easter time, he says, is different. This is what he says. By contrast, the Easter story is both appalling and astonishing. The craven betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest followers, the triple denial by his best friend, the gruesome crucifixion and the brutal end to his earthly life. And then, of course, there is the stunning turnaround three days later. No, Easter is not as easy to digest as Christmas. It's harder to tame. And that's where we are here. In, right in the middle of the Easter story, this narrative of betrayal and denial and, and death, and it is hard to tame not just because of the brutal and the sad death of this, of this Jewish rabbi. It's, it's hard to tame because it, it confronts us. Easter challenges us to examine ourselves, and it confronts us in uncomfortable ways. Right? And that's, what, that is, that's blatantly true in what we just read. In one, sense, in one sense, it's very hard in one sermon to cover all this ground in what, in what we just read. Right? There's many opportunities to dig deeper into, into lots of things that we, we just read about. And oftentimes, this big section is broken up into, into smaller pieces. But, but, but while it's hard for me, kind of as a preacher sometimes, to just move so quickly over some of it, it's like, oh, we could talk more about that. Right? In another sense, reading the entire narrative of Jesus' death and burial allows us to be confronted by the magnitude of what's happening here at the hinge of human history. Because right? you, you can't read these things and not be confronted Right? Confronted, confronted, I think, by three things. First, confronted by the offense of the claims that are being made here. Confronted by the reality of the death that Jesus is dying. And confronted by the necessity of a response to what's happening. Right? The offense of the claims, the reality of the death, and the necessity of a response. Now, the first thing, then, that confronts us at the cross here is, is the offense of the claims. It's interesting. For all of the people's misunderstanding of who Jesus really was, for all that they didn't really get as to what he was actually doing, by, by this point, they actually do get a significant part of his claim correct. 
Right? Now, now, Mark, for his part, in, in telling the story of Jesus, he doesn't keep the reader in the dark about who Jesus is. He states it right up front. You go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He says he's writing an account about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he's doing. However, oftentimes, as you kind of go through the, the story, you see early in his teaching ministry, Jesus would do some healing or he would reveal some, some truth about himself to his disciples, and then he'd say, okay, now don't tell anyone. And that seems strange at first, but until you realize that Jesus knew that the people didn't have a good category for, for who he was and that it wasn't the right time at that moment to completely and broadly reveal who he was. But, but that's all over now. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Remember, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Mark chapter 14 when Jesus was standing in his trial before the Jew, Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And the high priest looks at him and directly asks, are you the Christ, the son, the son, of, the son of God? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus very clearly, and for the official court record, says, I am. And then last week, we see Jesus standing before, before the Roman authorities, before the Roman court. And he's very clearly asked by, by Pontius Pilate, the Roman authority, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus looks at him for the official court record and says, it is as you say. Right? And that's the charge that sticks. Jesus isn't up on the cross because of his ethical teaching. He isn't up on the cross because he, he healed people. And both of those, in some sense, at, at different times, were offensive to, to certain people. But that's not why he's there. He's on the cross because he claimed to be the Christ, the King, and the Son of God. And that's the charge they got to stick. And that's what everyone is so riled up about. Look, just look. Let's just go through it. In verse 26, right, we see that there was this sign that, that stated the charge that was, against Jesus that was put on the cross itself, the King of the Jews. And John's, and John's gospel account tells us that, that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he was the one who was responsible for it. He had it written in three languages, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, so everyone could read it. Everyone would be able to understand it. It was his justification for why this man was being crucified in the eyes of Rome. Jesus was claiming a right to rule, and Caesar would have nothing to do with that. He couldn't tolerate that. Now, Pilate misunderstood what kind of king Jesus was, of course, but if he was offended by it in any way, he should have been. He should have been offended by the claim. Jesus was claiming to be king. Then, verse 29, look, we see the people passing by, and they're screaming up at Jesus. They're taunting him. They're saying, hey, you who were going to destroy the temple, build it again in three days. Why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? Now, what, what was the temple for the Jewish people? It was the place where, where atonement happened. It was how you approached God. It was how you got into his presence. It was the entrance into the presence of God. Now, we know that the comment that, that Jesus' comment that they're referring to back in John chapter 2, right, it's taken completely out of context. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his, his own body. But if the people had been offended by it, they should have been. Jesus was claiming to be the, the temple, the only way that they could approach God. Now, one more example, verses 31 to 32. <clears throat> the religious leaders, look, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they're mocking him mocking him for calling himself the Messiah, a Savior, and yet sitting there seemingly completely incapable of rescuing even himself. He can't even save himself, they said. Now, we know that they didn't really believe that, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the, the, the Savior of Israel. They didn't really want to believe. But if the religious leaders were offended by the claim, they should have been. <laughs> Jesus was claiming that they needed to be rescued, that they weren't good enough and that he was the one to do it. See, that's why Jesus is on the cross. 
Now, in a sense, of course, remember, all these people completely misunderstood Jesus, but it's ironic that even in the midst of their profound misunderstanding and unbelief, they actually get the claims right. He is the king. He is the temple. He is the Messiah. And what we need to take from that, what we need to take from that as we consider it, is, is that actually how all of these claims are not only offensive to them then, they're offensive to us now, to the modern ear, these claims, to me and to, and, and, and to you. Because look, think about this. If Jesus is claiming to be Savior, then that means that you are helpless and you need to be rescued. And that's something that a self-reliant Western American does not want to hear. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps? No. That's what he's saying. And that's offensive. If Jesus is claiming to be the temple, then it means that the only way that you can approach God is through him, that he's the only way to God. And that's offensive. And if Jesus is claiming to be, to be king, then it means that he's not just simply the ruler of the, of the world in some abstract sense. It means that he has sovereign rule over every part of our lives. Wait a minute. And I said, now I'm offended. Because do you mean that he gets the right to rule over my money and how I spend it? My time and how I use it, my sexuality and how I express it, my, my prejudices and who I want to help and when and how I do that? Yes. Do you mean that he's saying there's only one way to God and then if I don't come through him, I can't get to God? Yes. And do you mean that I'm so helpless that I need someone to rescue me? Yes. And you say, I'm offended. Right. Jesus knows that. You think he doesn't know that? He's hanging on the cross. He's bloodied. He's beaten. He's very aware that someone has been offended by his claims. Right? And you say, but yeah, but that's the Romans. That's the Jewish leaders. No, that, that's, that's my point. It's not just the Romans and the Jewish leaders. These claims are offensive. They're, they were offensive then to both the secular and the religious authorities. They're offensive now to us in the same very way. That's the first thing that confronts us about the cross, the offense of the claims. Now, the second thing that confronts us is the reality of Jesus' death. And, and by, by reality, I mean both the fact that Jesus really died and the implications of what that means. Now, first, let's just, let's just dispense for a minute about the fact of his, the fact of his death. And we need to do this because of the, the, one of the common explanations that's kind of floated around over the centuries is an attempt to explain why just a couple of days later, this guy who everyone thought was dead was now walking around talking to people was that he wasn't really dead. You know, he, he, was, he, he had sort of fainted maybe, and they put him in the tomb. It was cool in there. He revived and somehow just got up, woke up, and, and kind of went on his way. Then he just swooned. In fact, people call it the swoon theory, right? But you can't, act, you can't conclude that in any way from the eyewitness accounts of, of, of Jesus that we see here. Right? First, look at this. The Romans, they clearly think Jesus is dead. The centurion watches him take his last breath in verse 37, thinks he's dead. Right? Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, is skeptical at first, and so he asks for official verification from the centurion, verse 44. Right? Now, if there's anything, anything that a Roman centurion did with excellence and precision, it was death. Okay? And Pilate probably hadn't, hadn't heard, but what we learn in John chapter 19 is that one of the soldiers, just to make sure that he was really dead, took a spear, shoved it into Jesus' side, pierced the pericardium, right? and blood and water flow out. Right? Now, it it's, so, the, so the Romans clearly thought he was dead. Now, it's also worth noting that the followers of Jesus, some of whom might have been there on the several occasions when Jesus said that he was going to rise from the dead, they thought he was dead too. Joseph of Arimathea, we'll talk about him more in a minute, but in verse 46, he takes the body and he seals it in a tomb. That's where dead people go. 
And these women who were at the cross in verse 40, and some of, some of them followed, to, followed Joseph to the tomb in verse 47, they weren't crying out, stop, let's wait, maybe, maybe we can revive him. No, they thought he was dead. Right, so that certainly confronts us about, about Jesus' death, that, the, the fact that he was actually dead. But by the reality of, by re, the, reality of the death, what I actually mean is, is something far more than just its factual accuracy. The, the real reality that I, that I mean is, is what this death actually signifies, its, its implications. Because what it means, if you take it in the context of, of Jesus' claims, is that the king and the Messiah endured physical pain, cultural shame, and heavenly judgment. Right? Now, the physical part is the most obvious course, right? But, but even then, it's easy for Christians to sort of subconsciously sanitize crucifixion, right? Crucifixion was intentionally gruesome, intentionally painful. You know the word excruciating, right? It means incredibly, even unbearably, agonizingly painful. It comes from two Latin words, ex and crux, right? Out of the cross, ex crux, excruciating, right? Someone was trying to find a word <laughs> that, that, that meant extreme agony, and they said, I, it's kind of like I'm being crucified, even the Romans hated it, right? In fact, a Roman citizen, no matter his crime, wasn't allowed to be executed by crucifixion. Right? And, and even then, it was, it was hated, it was despised. Cicero, who was the, the great Roman philosopher and, and, and politician, about 100 years, it was born about 100 years before Jesus, right? Just as the Romans were sort of perfecting crucifixion from the, from the Persians, he looked at it, he called it a most cruel and disgusting punishment. But the, but the reality, so that's the physical aspect, and I don't think we should, we can't deny that. But the reality of what someone experienced in crucifixion goes well beyond the physical because think of the emotional shame that's involved here, right? I mean, the physical pain part could have, could have been experienced behind closed doors, some sort of torture chamber or, or something like that. But this is excruciating pain that's on public display. It takes it to an entirely new level. Imagine, right? You're stripped naked. Every last bit of your dignity is removed. Your guilt, if you're guilty, is broadcast for everyone to see. It was designed to make an example of you. If you're not guilty, it's even worse because the only thing that you have in a culture like that, your name, your reputation, it's completely smeared forever. The only thing that will outlast you, your reputation, is just destroyed. And then there's the mocking. Think of what Jesus, what we see here, right? I mean, last week we looked earlier in Mark 15, the soldiers mocking Jesus. Now, now he's actually being executed. The crowds are hurling insults at him. The religious leaders are mocking him. Even the two criminals that are being crucified with him, it tells us at the end of verse 32, they're insulting him. Seriously, how much more humiliating can it get than to have the guy on the cross next to you talking trash? Right? Now, all, all, of, that's, all of that's true. The reality of the death that we're confronting here, intense physical pain, right? Deep, deep emotional shame. But both of those, think about it, both of those could be experienced. They would be true for just about anyone who was being crucified by the Romans. Well, that's, that's not unique to, to Jesus. Everyone would have felt that. What makes Jesus unique and what makes the reality of this death so distinctive is that Jesus didn't just experience physical pain and didn't just experience cultural shame. He's experiencing heavenly judgment. Now, where do we get that? Look again at verse 33 and 34. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, first, the whole timing thing, sixth hour, ninth hour, all that. Well, according to the Jewish system, the sixth hour would have been noon. 
hour zero would be six, and you count, from, you count from there when the sun comes up. So what this means is that when the midday sun would have been at its highest and the brightest in the sky, a darkness falls across the whole land, and it remains there until three in the afternoon. Now, just in case you were wondering, it couldn't have been an eclipse. Right? Passover always falls during a full moon, and a solar eclipse never happens during a full moon. And solar eclipses, the solar eclipses, they only last five or six minutes anyway. So something supernatural is clear. This darkness lasts three hours. Something supernatural is going on here, and this is what it is. In the Bible, light symbolizes God's presence, his blessing. Darkness is a, is, is a sign of God's anger and God's judgment. So, so when Jesus dies and darkness comes over the whole land, we know right away God's angry. He's angry about something. But but how do we know that the anger, the judgment, is being experienced by Jesus? Well, we know it because of what Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is a, this is a quote from, from Psalm 22, but, but it's, in, it's indicative that Jesus is, is really feeling pain. Now, we said, no doubt, he's suffering physical agony on the cross, but what he's talking about here is spiritual agony. Jesus feels as if he's being forsaken by God. Note what he's not complaining about. He's not saying, my arms, my arms, my legs, my legs. He's not saying, my reputation, my reputation, my dignity, my dignity. He's saying, my God, my God. There's pain in all those other areas, but, but when he finally breaks the silence to express his pain, the pain about which he cries out is the ruptured relationship with God. See, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by God. When darkness comes over the whole earth, symbolizing the judgment of God. It's Jesus that God was punishing. And this, this is what we need to realize. This is what true pain is. We don't like to, people don't like to talk about hell much. I realize it's not a very comfortable topic. But this is what hell is. This is what was happening to Jesus. It is separation from God. See, we don't realize it, but as bad as this world might seem, this is not hell. Right? Because even here, even in the darkest places here, there are glimmers of light. There are still shadows of goodness, if I can mix the metaphor, shadows of goodness and, and, and beauty and pleasure and joy that exist. Even in the darkest places, there's still shadows there. But in hell, all of those things are completely removed because the very nature of the judgment is the complete removal of the presence of God. And he's the one who is the source of all good, of all pleasure, of all joy, of all beauty. And so when he goes, so do they. And what is left is what the, he the prophets of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures would have called utter darkness. Right? And that's what Jesus was experiencing. But wait, why is he experiencing it, right? Jesus was sinless. Why is God angry at him? Why is God punishing him? And that is exactly the question that sits at the center of the entire Bible and at the heart of what we call the gospel. Right? Jesus is not experiencing this pain, this hell, this judgment, this darkness because of his sin. He's experiencing it because of Hours. That's the reality of the death. Because we hear, we, we hear his claims, and we curse him anyway. We don't like the prospect of, of hell's darkness on one hand and the absence of God, and yet what we ask for functionally is for a God who would leave us alone or would intervene only at those moments that we find it convenient. Right? See, we deserve the darkness. It's the most fitting punishment for the crime. Right? We desire a life without God, and that's what the darkness of God's judgment is, the removal of his presence. Jesus doesn't deserve it, but we do. We deserve the death that he's experiencing, but he takes it. He dies that death instead. 
Now, how can we possibly respond to that? Which brings us to the last thing that confronts us about the cross. We're, we're confronted by the offense of the claims, and we recognize that we share them too, those claims. We're confronted by the reality of the, the death, and then we're led to the necessity of a response. And what this means for, for, for you is critical. When you're confronted with the offense of the claims and the reality of the death, you realize that you have to respond. And by that, I don't mean that you should respond. What I mean is, is that everyone, whether they're consciously doing it or not, everyone does respond. Whether you're thinking about it or not, you do. And, and, and you have right here in what we read uh, just a pretty good list of just about every kind of response that you could could possibly have. Let, let's just kind of go through. Let's survey real quickly. And, and I want you to ask yourself, where do you see yourself? Right? Your response to the cross. Are you ready? Look, first, you've got the soldiers. Right? What are they doing when Jesus is crucified? Verse 24. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Right? Just another day at the office. Let's see who's dying today. Right? That's a nice tunic. Larry, that would look, you, no, you have it. It would look good with your belt. Just another day. Another guy, clothes to divide up, right? See, they're so busy, just stuck in the daily grind of life. They're scratching out a living to notice that right above them, history is happening, right? So that's them, the, the, the soldiers. They're too busy. They're indifferent. Then you have the religious leaders. Already talked about them a little, but look again at what they say in verses 31 and 32 again, right? The same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, mocked him among themselves. He saved himself, or he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Now, they absolutely do not believe the claims of Jesus because they're convinced that they have no need for him. The religious leaders never did. They already think that they're good enough for God. They actually see in the crucifixion, because crucifixion from a Jewish perspective was so offensive that it was a mark of God's judgment, they actually see in, in this a verification that what they said about him was correct. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be the anointed Holy One because if he were, he wouldn't be there. They consider themselves better than, than, than this weak Jesus, and they mock him. Now, you also have the bystander. Look at verse 36. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offers it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now, what's, this, what's up with this guy? He seems well-meaning, wants to give Jesus a drink, but really, he's just there for the show, <laughs> In the Old Testament legend, the, the, the prophet Elijah was the, the rescuer of, of God's people, the rescuer of, of, of God's people in need. And, and this guy wants to see if Elijah's going to come and perform some spectacular miracle and, and rescue Jesus. Right? And we can relate to that. He was, he was there, he was there not, for the, not for what was happening and its implications for him personally. He was there for the spectacle. Right? And that's why some people come to church, particularly at holiday seasons. They come for the show. Right, now, don't get me wrong, right? Come on, come on Monday, Thursday. The, act, the music's going to be excellent. The choir's going to be fantastic. Come on, on, on Easter and, and hear the music and the, and the, and, and the grandeur of the, of the resurrection. But, but the spectacle, if that's why you're coming, the spectacle completely misses the point of the cross. Now, other response. Look, the disciples. <laughs> and here you have two different responses from the follower of Jesus, right? Followers of Jesus. You have the, you have the response from the men and the response from the women. Right, now, the response from the men, the, 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 the men followers of Jesus, where are they? What verse should we cite? Oh, wait, they aren't there. Actually, John was there, John, probably. John tells us that he was. But there's no indication that many of the others were. They're hiding. They're afraid of being implicated in the, in the crime. They're afraid of being named as one of Jesus' followers. And they probably had very good reason to be, 
to be afraid. Right? So they're, they're fearful. Now, the women disciples, they're there. It says on, in, 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 in several instances, they were there. They were, they, they were watching. And yet, all they, at the end of the day, all they're left with is, is, is sadness, sorrow, despair at what's going on. So those are the responses, right? And, and in one sense or another, they're, they're, all, they're all the wrong, the wrong response. The disinterested soldiers, the, the self-righteous religious leaders, the, the bystander who's just looking for the spectacle in the show, the disciples who are either, either just in despair or, or, or afraid and, and cowardly. But, there are, but there are, there's another response, actually two responses. Interesting, they come from both sides of the moral spectrum. They get it right. Look first, Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 43. Now, Joseph, it tells us, was a prominent Jewish religious leader. And we learn from Matthew and John's account that he had become a follower of, of Jesus. But, John tells us, he had become a follower of Jesus secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He feared what they would do to him. Now, I want you to consider what he does here in asking for Jesus' body because something must have happened on the cross, at the cross, that Joseph witnessed to now make him incredibly bold. Right? Think about this. You have a leader of an occupied people going to the Roman authorities and identifying himself as a friend of a crucified insurrectionist. That doesn't sound very legally prudent. Right? You could get yourself in trouble that way. You have a member of the Jewish high council going public with his faith. His faith in a, in a self-proclaimed Messiah and a condemned religious blasphemer. He was on the, he was on the Jewish high council. Right? That doesn't sound professionally wise. Right? But yet he does those things. Why? The only reason it could have been was that he was confronted by the claim of the cross, that, he, that this moral, religious man realized that his goodness would never be able to get him into the kingdom of heaven, that he needed what was happening there. Now, that's on one end of the moral spectrum, this moral religious leader. Now, on the other end, you have this Roman centurion, don't you? Right? At the exact opposite end. Centurions, centurions were not high-level officers in the Roman military. They weren't the aristocrats who got a commission so that they could get the, the prestige. They were the hardened men who had worked themselves up through the ranks, through the blood and the guts. And you don't get to be a centurion without having seen a lot of death. In fact, you don't get to be a centurion probably without being responsible for a lot of death particularly if this was his assignment, if this was his role. And yet there was something, despite all the death that he had seen, there was something about this death here that was different. This, the death of this guy that was different. You see verse 39, the centurion hears Jesus' cry and sees how he dies, and he proclaims, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, would you consider the boldness this was no small statement that this Roman soldier was making. This was a big deal. The Romans considered Caesar to be the son of a god. Right? Divi filius, the Latin kind of title, it was commonly used for Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. It was printed on coins. He, this, it, it was a big deal. It was no small statement for an officer of the Roman legions to ascribe that phrase to a Jewish criminal. That's bold. It's all, now, consider the significance, though the significance in the, in the narrative that Mark is telling here. Mark begins his account of Jesus' life way back in Mark chapter 1-1, remember? By saying that he's beginning to tell the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now here, in Mark 15, at the climax of Mark's entire news report, everything he's written, who is the very first person 
that you see looking at the cross and saying, figuratively, Mark, you're right. He's the Son of God. It's not a Jewish leader. It's an immoral, unclean, Gentile sinner who now has access to the perfect, holy God of the universe. That's what's so remarkable about, about the, the temple curtain that's, that's being torn in verse 38. It means that what happened on the cross had ripped down the barrier, ripped down the barrier that, separ that had separated sinners from, from God. It's ripped down. You're forgiven. The price has been paid. Now, do you see yourself here in what's happening? Are you in physical pain? Right? Do you struggle with situations that are at times excruciating? Look at Jesus on the cross. Watch how he absorbs the pain. Have you been shamed? Falsely accused? Your name ruined? Your dignity taken from you? Raped, abused, insulted, slandered? Look at Jesus on the cross and watch how he absorbs the shame. Watch him, as Hebrews 12, 12 says, enduring the cross and scorning its shame. Are you a religious person? like Joseph of Arimathea, who, think, who thinks, at least functionally, day-to-day, -day, like you might be a Christian, but you think functionally, practically, on a day-to-day -day basis, you'd have no need of a Savior like this because you follow the rules, by and large. Would you look at the cross and see how absolutely arrogant it is for us to assume our own inherent goodness if the very Son of God had to come to earth and die for us? Are you a hardened sinner, like the centurion, you spent your life, maybe, or, you've, or periods in your life where you've done things that you wonder if God could ever, ever forgive, and then you look at the cross and you realize that when you put your faith in this crucified Savior, you now have access to the very throne room of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, how very difficult it is to put words to what you have done for us. And yet you speak to us in words. You come to us. You, you condescend to us and you express in words the most amazing event in the history of the world. Lord, we, we can't thank you enough in any, in any kind of meaningful way. And yet you, and you command us to recognize, command us to bow at your feet and to, and to praise you for what you have done. And so we do. Lord, confront us with the claims of the cross. Help us to see how you absorb our pain and our shame there. And Lord, give us the faith to believe and to trust and the confidence to know that we can now enter into the very presence of your throne room. God, let each of us go forth into this Easter week as we celebrate what you have done for us. Let us go forth with boldness and strength, preaching that gospel to ourselves and declaring it to a lost and hurting world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.